Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. To be um, audience-driven as much as possible, I mean, I'll, I'll start off with a, a broad question that I'd like each of the four uh, uh, individuals, each of our four speakers to discuss, and then I'm going to have some others kind of move along if you guys don't have questions. But ideally, I'd like it to be, again, as interactive and audience-driven as possible um, so that all of you have an opportunity to ask our experts um, their thoughts on, on this important piece of legislation. And actually, to kick it off, I'll, I'll start. First, let me just say I thought all four presentations were wonderful and uh, I valued uh, the contributions and comments made by all of you. Um, but I, I think it was great that you, you did this, but I guess I would view the four presentations as kind of very, uh, those that had an economics class will probably remember the difference between the, the positive versus normative distinction. And I would say you all four kept uh, the focus of your presentations on kind of the the positive, meaning kind of more scientific in nature, observations on the legislation. Um, but since each of you does have great expertise in this field, I'd like you each to take a few minutes and give me kind of your subjective or normative assessment of the Affordable Care Act. And I guess I'll, I'll start if you could just we'll go down in turn just the order you're sitting here. If you could start by saying on a scale from zero to 10, you know, how much of an improvement uh, compared to what we had in the U.S. before the Affordable Care Act in terms of institutions and regulations and, and policies and market outcomes. Um, you know, 10 is a, we solved all the problems in the healthcare field and you know, this is perfect, we don't need to do anything else. Zero is, it's a complete disaster. Uh, five would be, eh, things are pretty much the same as they were before overall. Um, if you give that assessment and then just you know, take a minute or two to quickly say, uh, why you would give it that assignment. We'll just go in turn. So, Sarah, if you want to start. Sure. Okay. I probably will be the most positive. So, I'd say maybe uh, a six or a seven. Um, I think there was a lot of talk about uh, regulations and things like this, but I think, you know, keeping our eyes on the fact that we do have this tremendous health inequality and there were a lot of people who really needed medical care and couldn't access it, I think it's um, undeniable that this improved access. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, Chuck in his talk maybe said something like, oh, only, it was only 26 million or only 24 million people that got coverage. That's, uh, you know, that's a lot of people. And it, maybe it's only 50,000 people a year who, who don't die because they have access to the care they need. But if one of those 50,000 people is your uncle or your friend or your daughter, then I think that that can be meaningful. Now, I don't think it was perfect at all. And I think um, there, it's a huge bill. I think Casey did a great job of sort of talking about how complex and how you know, multifaceted it is, there are lots of parts of the Affordable Care Act that I think were not great um, and that I think were, you know, were mistakes from the beginning or, or were good ideas to, at the beginning but in retrospect look like mistakes. And so I'm not saying it was this amazing bill, but I think the coverage gains 
and the gains in terms of loss of human life or gains in terms of not losing human life are important to keep in the front of our minds. I was going to say exactly that. Um, <laughs> so Sarah stole my thunder there. But yeah, I would also give it uh, six or seven, uh, partly because it didn't go far enough because of the Supreme Court ruling, which I think was mistaken, uh, limiting the expansion of Medicaid. And also, you know, we still have 30 million people or so that are uninsured. Um, and also, the law has a, a number of peculiar aspects to it, one of which is that if you are under 400% of the poverty level, you pay a maximum of 9.5% of your income. But if you go above that, you pay, let's say, 20% of your income. So there's a very big incentive <coughs> to only get insurance when you're subsidized. Um, so a lot of people that should get insurance but that cannot get the subsidies will not get insurance as a result of that. Um, so there are a lot of problems uh, with the law, but I, I, I believe it absolutely expanded um, coverage. They also did a lot of small things. It encouraged a lot of cost-saving experiments. It, it encouraged hospitals to examine their cost structure to see where they're spending money, where they're not spending money. Um, so I think it had a lot to that. It also removed the caps to um, the amount that you have to spend so that it's much less likely to become bankrupt as a result. You know, bankruptcy as a result of a medical problem is really unique to the United States. It virtually doesn't happen in Europe whatsoever. Um, and I don't see why that should be part of our landscape. So um, I think in that sense, it was a positive. But the, the non-group market still has a long way to go before it's really a functioning alternative to the group, just to be real clear, the group market is when you get your students to your job or your school <coughs> and you pay a premium that's the average for all the people in that group. But if you're not in a group in the United States, it can be quite expensive to get insurance and that problem has not really been solved. Well, I guess I'd give it a... Zero means I couldn't think of anything worse. Is that what a zero would mean? Five is status quo. Step five is yeah. status quo, so I give it a one. Because um, I could, I could think of something worse. So I, I, I w worked in the White House for a year. I just stopped it this summer. I learned two things there. One, uh, I got a profound respect for elected officials. I see them on TV getting Fs on economic tests. <laughs> and that's been my career, and a lot, probably all of you share that. And you're like, what are you thinking? But there's something that we technocrats don't have, and they have to answer to the people. And the people hated this thing. I mean, the president, he, he's quite a personality, right? But one thing he knows is how to get elected. <laughs> and he, he hammered, he talked about the border, he talked a lot of things, but the thing he hammered over and over is get rid of Obamacare. And look how many senators and how many congressmen lost their jobs from the voters kicking back. So that, um, that's something I take seriously. That, that, that there's a lot of people who really don't like that Obamacare thing, and maybe it's for reasons we technocrats can't can't figure out. So I, I, I'm not going to make them the Trump card, no pun intended. But they're, that's something I pay attention to. The other thing I learned in the White House, I wrote a book before, about Obamacare, a bunch of problems in Obamacare before I went to the White House, and then I went there and I found a bunch of more problems <laughs> with the Obamacare. Everything I showed you in my talk today is entirely new from my book. Um, it is like an endless pit of problems. So it, it, it's truly, like I said, these are unicorns. I, I would have never thought I would have seen one of these taxes in my entire career. I'd have to go to some weird place like Sweden or something where they really have really high taxes or something to see these crazy things. And here it is in my own country in one law. And then I turn the page 
And it's on another page. I mean, it is remarkably, remarkably bad. And that doesn't mean I accept everything we had before, but I don't take this view that like, okay, we had some problems and at least we tried, so let's celebrate. I mean, at least trying is, when you make something bad worse, shame on you. I mean, I, don't the doctors, the doctors are here, you don't you have some kind of oath that you like don't make things worse? And that's what this law did. I mean, it made things a bad situation worse and nothing, nothing at all to celebrate. Uh, could there have been something that would have made it even worse than this worse? Yeah, probably you could think of something. That's why I can't give it a zero. <laughs> There's a reason I picked this seat on the table. Um, but, but really, like, I, it, you heard some very distinct viewpoints and different sides, and it's weird to say, but I actually, like, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what everyone said, even if they ultimately end up on, on different sides. So it's this odd uh, kind of dynamic. I, I think part of that is the question was about did it fix the healthcare system? And I think part of it is this distinction. It, that's a different question than what was its net impact on social welfare or, or even economic efficiency. And, and so, so when, I, when I don't have a straight answer to the question, I'm going to change the question. So, so, but I would think about those as being decoupled. So the healthcare system narrowly, you know, did it fix the healthcare system only? Well, if you are taking resources from something and directing them towards something else, the something else tends to benefit. I, I think, I mean, if we're talking a five with status quo, I mean, just the healthcare system in a narrow sense, I would say maybe a six. I mean, I think there are, there are definitely certain things that, certain problems prior with the healthcare system that are at least a step in the direction of solving. Um, and, and so as some examples have come up, it is, this issue that I kind of let off my talk with about pre-existing conditions um, and how prior you have the situation where, you know, if you d didn't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid and, and you, you know, get a cancer diagnosis and, you know, you had a job without benefits, I mean, really financial catastrophe uh, and or a, a path to death, you know, I mean, it's very much real that there were a, mi a small minority of people who were really at risk of a catastrophe, who are no longer at risk of a catastrophe um, as, as a result of Obamacare. And I mean, we can't put no weight on that. Uh, and that's something certainly I think we should have come up with some way to address. Um, and, and, you know, and, and then there's uh, certainly access improvements among lower income. I mean, I wouldn't dispute that, that we've seen some of those in, in one way or another, one form or another. I mean, whether it could be mortality, you know. So, so you could have had these fundamental issues like, you know, like the, the pre-existing condition thing, like not being able to afford basic coverage, like existing funky incentives, like if you lacked health insurance and you were sort of sufficiently poor, you could turn up at the ER for strep throat and get free care, which is just ridiculously costly to sort of the taxpayer ultimately, versus now you can get it taken care of in a CVS Minute clinic. It, you know, so there are definitely incentive changes within the healthcare system on the positive dimension. None of us really talked much about 
the different kind of attempts to at least get a little more incentive compatible as far as physician, you know, as far as uh, some things in, within Medicare um, that are very in the weeds. I mean, I think so, so within the healthcare system, it's hard for me to say that you have something where half the people who lack insurance now have it and to say that the healthcare system is worse. You know, so, so that's why I would say a six if I was before you, a six. But I think that is a very different question of sort of a more aggregate social welfare. I mean, if you think about, so I might go a four there and say, yeah, the healthcare system could be marginally in a better situation, but overall social welfare, when you factor in all the distortions and sort of what that mean in the, might mean in a more dynamic sense, um, when you have all these sort of really funky incentive issues uh, that are kind of built into it, and when you have such a mass of redistribution, um, the subsidies, the, ta the different taxes, what, what you really have is a significant redistribution from the young and healthy to the older and sicker. Um, you know, and so, so how does one feel about, about redistribution in general? I mean, it's going to, so, you know, to try to put that in a little clearer terms, I mean, if we talk about $120 billion a year, and we talk about a certain amount of lives being saved as a result. I mean, we, that's, you know, these results may well be true, but again, you, you, it's sort of, well, that's 120 billion a year. And then what are all the other, you know, consequences of, of these distortions? Um, you have to take kind of a bigger view. Could you take that 120 billion and put it in, you know, what would the lives saved be if you took that 120 billion and you put it into early childhood investments uh, in, say, education? I mean, you really have to have a handle on what's the opportunity cost or what's the alternative use of, of these funds to, to really get at it. And I don't know, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, none of us are like, haven't worked out exactly, but I mean, I would say sort of marginally worse off. In, Anyone on the panel care to respond to or question any of the remarks made by Well, I would say, first of all, that the Republican Party is talking, their only domestic policy that it, they have talked about for the last decade has been total repeal in the place of the Affordable Care Act. And when they had the opportunity to do so, they did not do that. And the reason was that although people hate Obamacare, and they hate the Affordable Care Act, when they actually learn what's in the law, when, they, when it actually comes down to, well, there's 24 million people with insurance, should we take it away from them? That's actually not that unpopular. And I agree, the individual mandate was super unpopular. And I think even someone who is very pro-Affordable Care Act has to be looking back and saying, that was probably a mistake to put that in. That really made the law, um, you know, people have a very strong philosophical and political opposition to that, which I completely respect. I mean, I understand you don't want the federal government telling you what you have to buy. But things like the Medicaid expansion, rolling back the Medicaid expansion, or rolling back the subsidies that people receive on the exchanges, you know, I, I don't think they're political winners. And I think we have a revealed preference argument that they're not because there was ample opportunity to pull this back and there were lots of votes and they didn't, they didn't go through. So um, I'm not sure the argument that voters don't like Obamacare and so Obamacare has been a huge failure is very resonant to me personally. It's very unfair coming after you. Um, so I would say that as well. But also say, I don't know if anyone noticed that, well, you probably noticed in the Times, 
that the Democrats are trying to get the Supreme Court to rule on Obamacare before the election, and the Republicans are desperately trying to stop the Supreme Court from ruling on Obamacare until after the election. The obvious reason is that the Republicans are worried that the Obamacare will be ruled unconstitutional. And the reason they're worried about that is that would be a death knell to their election. Because the truth is, although people like to complain about it, if it were taken away, they would, they would complain a lot more. So the Democrats won the midterms because they ran on health care. They didn't run away from it, they ran on it. And the Republicans ran away from the tax cut. But we're getting a lot of into the politics of it, which I don't know that I'm an expert on. I do want to say one other thing about the Affordable Care Act, though, uh, which Casey mentioned, or uh, might have been Chuck, that is that they use the, um, the notion of a group insurance premium. In other words, you're only charged a premium based on how old you are and whether you smoke. But the groups are the wrong groups, and Chuck mentioned this. Um, as an older person, I am heavily subsidized by younger people, and we're wondering why younger people don't get insurance. Well, it could be because we're way overcharging them for the insurance. So instead of having just three groups of age in which the actual medical spending is much higher for the upper group than the lower group, I think we should move to five groups of age so that younger people will pay a much lower premium. Unfortunately, it would mean that I would have to pay a much higher premium, but nonetheless, it would get more people in the system. If you charge people vastly different amounts from the amount they're expected to spend, they're not going to participate. And that's the current system. We charge young people a lot, old people a little, and we're surprised that young people are not participating. So I think that's one change that we should make, and neither party seems to want to suggest that in all this time. Um, did you? Are we going down the line? Or if, if you care to, I mean, if you don't really have anything. I'm ready to, do, to get the uh, audience involved. Yeah. I, I think, can I just jump in with one? Um, I think when we start talking about the politics of something, that's different than the original question. And if you give people free stuff, they tend to like to vote for you. And, and that's not really indicative of, uh, and if you, on the other hand, if you take their money to give someone else free stuff, they tend to not want to vote for you. So, you know, I think that's a little distinct from overall welfare implications or, or health care. You know, delivery. I mean, I, I do think it's it's a little hard to. I mean, I, I would argue with that. that I, okay. I mean, we technocrats are oblivious to a lot of things, like the okay. opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. The our elected officials heard of that long before we did, and because most of us in universities and mm -hmm. big cities and big corporations, we don't know people who've died from that. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, and. Elected officials have to answer those people every every other year <laughs> in a way that we maybe never do in our life, um, and that we got a democracy that uh, their voice is heard in a very imperfect way. But I, I don't dismiss it as saying, well, because it's imperfect, I'm just going to get to ignore those people. I mean, and I don't think I, so. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. A lot of senators. You know, the, the Senate and the House got totally swept out by mm -hmm. people because they raised their hand yes on that law. It was, it was very upsetting to, to people. And I was 10 years ago now, and maybe we'll forget and think about other things. Probably will. But I don't know anybody voting for Medicare or where your, your Social Security you suffered these kind of mm -hmm. political consequences and backlash from, <laughs> from the regular people. I have a 
question that wasn't directly, uh, <laughs> you didn't directly discuss, but if you have any data or comment on it. And that is, I'm concerned that we are not now getting the best, as many good people going into the study of medicine. Uh, I think uh, people who had thought about becoming physicians, I agree, I, I, for years I thought it was ridiculous how much doctors charged, but you could choose your care, and I thought frequently you could find very good care. My answer to that was I thought we needed more medical schools, because I felt for years the medical profession prohibited the number of doctors coming out in certain fields. There weren't enough of them, and they, their prices were sky high. Open more medical schools and get more people into those, those professions. That's the answer. But now I'm concerned that it's a hidden problem with all of this regulation. Uh, our best students are often are now are not going into medicine, and who wants to deal with all of the paperwork, the red tape? And if you totally fund everyone with socialized medicine, the physicians don't make much. So, uh, do you have any data or observations on that? My, uh, my blog is called Supply and Demand in that order because I feel that our profession doesn't pay enough attention to supply. And it's because it doesn't lend itself to some of these statistical methods, which are great methods for a lot of problems, but then the problems for which it's not a great method end up getting ignored. And it, you can't have things without <coughs> them being created by suppliers. <laughs> and and uh, it, it's. It's a big, uh, it's a big issue. Um, you mentioned some of them. I would add to it, you know, some of the regulatory barriers put in between, say, nurses and doctors. So scope of practice type barriers. Yes. I, I'm in Illinois. I don't know if they have this in Georgia, but if you want to open a new clinic or hospital, anyone where someone would stay overnight for a health reason, your competitors have to say it's okay. I mean, can you imagine like Burger King wants to open another? outlet and they have to ask McDonald's if it's okay we do have that you have that in Georgia too it, it, it's um, maybe somebody in the audience benefits from that but it's ridiculous we wouldn't allow that in any other industry but um, so the supply is is a very important issue innovation I maybe I put ahead of all others the supply medical innovation um, are we incentivizing that or not um, I mean health care we can we have plenty to complain about current healthcare system, but there's a lot of things that we can do now. Like was mentioned, the, the statins and heart disease and uh, diabetes is better treated. And it's discovering those new innovations of the future, um, very important. And that, that could swamp anything you could do with gold plants and silver plants. So, yeah, barriers to entry are kind of the term economists have for these things. And yeah, I mean, the healthcare industry is basically exhibit A for barriers to entry and you know the problems that come from that and, and these have been said the certificate of need law is a big one licensing you know and the fact so there is this balancing act of well you you got to have some quote barriers to entry because you don't just want me to wake up tomorrow and start practicing medicine right I mean you want to have some quality control the issue are the incentives and who's in charge of sort of how much quality control. And when you have the American Medical Association, you have the people who stand to benefit from supply being restricted, being the ones in charge of deciding what supply should look like in entry in the profession. There's a there's a disincentive there, and, and that's part of, of the issue. I think that definitely the, there's one slide in the end of my presentation about yeah, this is something when you 
academics tend to just talk, give everyone insurance, but you don't think about the other side of that equation and potential capacity concerns amplified by these barriers of that to entry and not doing anything on the barriers to entry side or anything meaningful while you're throwing all these more people on health insurance. Yeah. And I think I would add as we go, as we talk about Medicare for all, um, you know, as we come in on the election and so on, I, I think this is one of the things that kind of aggravates me the most about that whole conversation, um, which is that the, there's this, the, this fixed sort of quantity supply, this idea that quantity supply is just going to magically, you, what, talk about, would Medicare for all lower costs? And, I, and that's, you know, sure it could. Well, how? How would it? The question is, would it lower costs? The question is, how would it lower costs? The reason it would lower cost is because you create a monopsony <coughs> from an economic standpoint, one buyer of a service. So it's like the reverse of a monopoly, where the buyer is now the government. They're the only buyer of these services, and they unilaterally can decide what the prices are going to be. So if Medicare for all controls costs, it's going to do it the same way Medicaid controls costs, which is just lower fees, lower prices, lower prices, lower prices. And that's not the market. That's just brute force from the government holding prices down. And, and so this idea that Medicare for all well, it could lower costs, well, yeah, by brute force, you could control costs. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. And because people tend not to think about downstream from that. Well, if all of a sudden the way you control costs is by brute force putting all the uh, you know, fees charged by different medical providers down to the level Medicaid does, well, now no one's going to go into that, that, that industry or many fewer people are going to go into that industry. And yeah, you keep costs down, but, but you end up with access issues, you know, being amplified. And, and I really think as, uh, you know, people who study this industry, we should be able to do better. We should be able to come up with, to, to balance these considerations where you do provide some sort of universal coverage, some sort of backstop while at the same time getting rid of some of these awful incentives. Um, you know, like if you make care free for everybody, people are just going to use more of it, and then you've got the government on the back end saying, well, the prices are going to, we're going to force the prices down to keep it in budget, and then, you know, you have the spiral. So, I mean, I really think we should be able, that's a bit off topic of your question, but an important point, and we should be able to kind of do better than that. Um, taking advantage of the things that do work about markets while still preserving some sort of safety net where someone who gets cancer, you know, isn't going to be wiped out financially. And we can do these things. It's just, you know. And, and Chuck, can I just add yeah. one thing to that? So I agree uh, with you about supply, and I agree with um, Casey and Chuck about barriers to entry. But I think one thing that didn't come out in that discussion is that, I mean, I agree that we should reduce these certificate of need laws and improve competition, but that is not going to lead to higher physician salaries or reimbursement. No. If, if it's done correctly, if we think they have monopoly power now, it'll lead to lower um, physician salaries and reimbursement if we encourage more competition and we, and we provide a greater supply. That, that's good in the sense of economic welfare, but you know, if you're, you're thinking about who's choosing to become a physician, that could be relevant but, too. But, but that's prices going down because of activating market forces <laughs> rather than prices going down because the government comes in with a hammer and forces them down, and I mean, that's an important distinction. Well, they're totally the opposite. Yeah. yeah. The way the single payer reduces prices is by withholding demand. Yep. This is yep. already already known. The Europeans, they'll say, 
Oh, you're a certain age, no new hip for you, no new knee for you. And by doing that, they're able to get the knee and hip guys to take lower, lower fees. I mean, that's, that's how they do it. Now, if you remove barriers to competition, that's going to mean more knee and hip guys, not less. Yeah. So yeah. these are quite the opposite. Yeah, exactly. In both cases, prices go down, but in the case where it's done through the market competition, quantity goes up. In the case where it's done through brute government, quantity, force, quantity I, I always look at the quantity of healthcare first. Quantity, let, me, yeah. let me look at the quantity first, and then the prices is kind of the, how that works out. And the f focus in a lot of the discussion is around the price, and then, then we forget about the quantity. But the quantity, the purpose of the healthcare is for the healthcare, not, not for the money changing hands. I know a bunch of doctors and they first complained that um, the medical recording, you know, everyone has to do it electronically now, and apparently that was uh, torturous at the beginning, but now the kinks have been worked out and now they kind of like it. Um, uh, the, the other fact is that the Affordable Care brought in 20 to 30 million new customers, which is not necessarily a bad thing if you're a doctor or, or a practitioner, but it, you know, it's imposed some regulations which can be irritating, undoubtedly. And I think, I mean, Casey brought this up in his talk, but in terms of hospitals, it's been pretty good for hospitals. I mean, if you think about the professional organizations that have been advocating for more expansion um, because they have experience, they're, they're kind of on the hook for uncompensated care anyway because there's something called EMTALA, which says that they have to at least take in and stabilize patients even if they have no means of paying for their care whatsoever. And so they were already kind of providing a lot of this this uncompensated care because they were mandated to, and then um, now they're getting reimbursed from Medicaid. So um, I think it's been at least somewhat good for our hospitals' uh, operating margins. Um, about the what the patient quality measures, um, I mean, a, a lot of different insurance companies and different payers have different patient quality measures. Um, I think Casey mentioned that they they don't have have those anymore. Is well, the mention? pain questions were removed. There's the still related questions there's, there's still questions about the patient experience. Yeah, but I know um, like United Healthcare has these questions and Blue Cross Blue Shield. I mean, so my impression is that there's a lot of experimentation in the payer space of how to write contracts with providers that somehow get at better valued care. Um, but it's been, uh, you know, I'm in a business school, so I talk, you know, I talk about a lot of people on the private side, and it's been it's been hard to find a way for Blue Cross Blue Shield Michigan or United to get this right. And I think even without the Affordable Care Act, there's still going to be some experimentation on this that might end up being not productive. So, so, so there's this, uh, what's the alternative question? And 
you know, and why this movement in this direction. And you know, historically, uh, it's trying to get away from this thing called fee-for-service payment, fee-for-service reimbursement, which essentially just means, you know, I've let's say I've got great insurance, I've got brand new Medicare for all, no deductibles, no copays, nothing. You know, um, I get sick, I go to the hospital, and what's my incentive to pay any attention to how many services are being used and how much those services are going to cost if I'm not the one kind of paying at least something for it? And you know, so that's this, and then fee for service is where then the medical provider turns around and just bills. <coughs> based on how many services are, are provided, how many days in the hospital, which drugs were given, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're tacking on this giant bill, which then goes to the insurer um, to pay. And the patient has no incentive to sit there and say, wait a minute, why are you giving me that medicine? How much is that going to cost? Right? And so it's this gradual movement away from the fee-for-service system, realizing the incentives to over-treat that come with that and trying to move in this direction of paying based on value rather than just paying on how many pills you gave someone or how many days in the hospital. So that sounds nice. The problem is how the heck do you measure value? Um, you know, and so you end up, it's, we all teach it's the same thing, right? What course evaluations from students, what are the incentives that gives us to, you know, to try to be too nice, to give them what they want, to not think about what's best for them 10, 20 years down the road, same thing with medical providers, you know, if you're sort of, if you're measuring value on patient satisfaction surveys, you're still going to have an incentive to give the patient what they want, whatever that is, you're not going to be concerned about broader social welfare implications for, you know. So trying to move toward value rather than just number of services, but how you do that is, is a heck of a lot harder. Um, and I think, you know, your example illustrates, I mean, it's, it's a legitimate concern and I think it, it illustrates that I mean that's why I tend to start with personally of like well what are the interferences that are preventing sort of the beneficial aspects of, of market competition from happening and maybe clear try to clear those out a little bit first and then sort of see what we're working with um, but it, it's a hard it's a hard question though. Um, Dr. Morgan, in uh, 1993, Dr. Thomas Sowell noted that uh, American doctors pays 14 times more than a German doctor for medical malpractice insurance. I'm wondering what role does that have on the market, and is that justified? You know, I think it varies a lot by state. Um, I live in Illinois, nearby Indiana, and a lot of my neighbors are doctors, and they go work in Indiana. Um, <laughs> and it's a very big deal for them. Um, and a lot of us patients follow them over there. Um, things like orthopedics have that done over in Indiana. Um, you know, the repeal and replace was supposed to uh, deal with, try to deal with that, and as it happened. Um, I haven't heard much buzz on it in the last year, but I don't think the problem has gone away. There are lots of studies that try to get at some of these issues and quantify them. I mean, I would. I would basically summarize them as saying, you know, defensive medicine is the term for doctors kind of over-providing care, not because they're trying to rack up the bill in a negative sense, but because they're scared of a lawsuit. Um, and, and then, so that's, that, that uh, defensive medicine does happen, but that if you tally it all up, it's, it's uh, 
a minute portion of overall healthcare expenses. So, so that the issue you're raising is a real issue, but that it's one of a hundred small things, not uh, not like the one thing that if you fix this, which is unclear how you would even do that. Like, which well, what's to say one is better than the other? I mean, it could be that other places are too um, restrictive in terms of suing when there's genuine damages. So, but but that that wouldn't be the one. That would be one of 10, 20, you know, however many things, not the whole, not the one thing that you fix and everything magically. I just wanted to make a couple comments. One was a misconception about doctors keeping the number of, you know, training programs low. That's actually uh, a department of the Senate. It's a subcommittee. It's the Council for Graduate Medical Education. I've worked for the last 30 years trying to get them to increase the number of in, in my specialty, and they and they draw the line, and that's related to dollars. And the second thing has to do with competition, and talking about the different states that, that have CON laws, certificate of need, um, and and part of the reason that is important we have it here in Georgia is because hospitals that are not for profit um, provide the more uh, specialized care, ICUs, burn units, trauma care. And if you siphon all of the commercial carriers away from the hospital systems, you will see those services decline. And as a private insurer, you know, insured person, you want those services in your area. So I, I just wanted to kind of clarify those, those two points, but I'm still for free market on a lot of things. If you look at the ophthalmologist where something isn't covered, the price of LASIK surgery has continued to decline. Uh, because there is competition and it's not reimbursed by insurance companies. It's a it's quality of life operation. And so uh, I think there's a place for both. What lobbyists are, are behind the senators not, not responding to you? I appreciate your efforts in that, but there's bound to be some lobbyists in the it, it's, it's a budgetary issue. It's always yeah. a budgetary issue. I don't understand why it's a budgetary You know, for the senator. Well, That's I, another thing with well, over-regulation. Well, it's not for doctors, it's for the residency programs, which you really don't practice until you finish right. residency program. But why but can't they cut the hours of residence? I'm sorry, that's another one of my hands, and, and cut them down. Well, we can talk offline. That's a very interesting discussion. It's a great topic. You know, Milton Friedman's dissertation was on this the supply of uh, medical schools. Long time ago. And the issue hasn't changed. <laughs> well, there have now been some private uh, public partnerships in the state. We have, we have three residency programs where I work, the hospital I work, and that's and that did require, you know, uh, that's in addition to what the government mm -hmm. So, JC, I think Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, the ACA is great for natural experiments. I was just hearing some job candidates talk about it. <laughs> so, I'd just like to know. All different perspective on it. So, what's the best incentive from the AC, ACA and the worst incentive from the ACA? That's been crazy by the ACA. Well, I mean, I think the best incentive for the ACA is for people who um, are low income and who didn't have insurance and who needed a certain type of medical care. To actually seek it so they were you know otherwise going to the emergency department instead of possibly to a doctor's office they were seeking really expensive care or they were having sort of downstream issues um, because they didn't get care up front and so 
that um, the subsidies, uh, you know, especially for Medicaid, where you have very little out-of-pocket costs, um, encouraged the use of care. And in our study and in the study by the, um, the IRS authors that I discussed, you know, there's, there's real health consequences and real health improvements as a result. So I would say the best incentive is that. The worst incentive, that's tough too. I mean, I'm also not a fan of the employer mandate, which um, Casey mentioned, and I think, um, I, I think anything that makes it uh, more expensive for employers to hire low-income people who are trying to get a job is is not a great is not a great incentive. And so I think one of the um, problems with that is if you had a lot of people you weren't offering health insurance and you said you aren't going to offer health insurance and then they needed to use the exchange coverage to get the coverage to get the care they needed, then you would be penalized for those employees and they would become very expensive for you, right? And so that might encourage you to go more towards automation or um, do other things that I think um, maybe aren't generating the best incentive. But if I, I guess if I were to pick the best and the worst, that's probably what I would come down on. Think, well, that was what I thought. Um, so, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, the best incentive is probably to get insured. Um, this thing is worst incentive. Well, uh, sometimes when you try to mandate quality of care or efficiency from above, it's not going to be very effective. Uh, for example, I think there's a mandate on hospitals requiring them to reduce the number of readmissions. And so it's hard to know from a legislative point of view, how many readmissions are the right number of readmissions? So uh, mandating that hospitals jump through hoops uh, to keep the readmissions down seems like a bad incentive to me. Um, it seems like the legislator knows more than the hospital or the doctor what patient needs to be readmitted. So I, it seems to me that's not a good incentive. Um, well, it's also assuming that the provider is the controller of whether or not that's, that's true. You don't know if the patient is doing what he or she is supposed to do outside the hospital. Uh, but they do keep records on how many times the patient comes back into the hospital. And so they, they do a lot of peculiar things to make sure the patient doesn't come back. So they may refer them to another hospital system or somewhere where they don't come back into that particular record keeping system. They um, <laughs> give them some kind of fatal time. treatment and then you can avoid the My readmission altogether. <laughs> so I think that's my my uh, my worst incentive. The individual mandate uh, is epically bad. A four billion dollar tax that costs twenty five billion a year to support. I mean, uh, who in the world would have wanted that? It was most of my profession. I'm ashamed to say. Um, and it, that one is gone. Uh, there was no. The politicians knew. Even uh, somebody mentioned. Uh, President Obama himself, I think, according to his communication director in his in his uh, memoirs, he says that Obama acknowledges that that was a little mistake. I mean, Obamacare and Obama's view was really great, but that was a blemish on it, and he wished he'd have done that part different. So, I think it's obvious. Everywhere between him and me, we know that that one's bad. Uh, the best incentive. You know, some of the stuff on giving room for experimentation, demonstration. We'll see how that works out, but I'll, I, I'm going to be charitable and say that it's going to work out. I, if I were to be a pessimist, I'd say it'll be hijacked for political purposes. But the idea that different things can be tried, I mean, that's how you make progress in anything, is uh, 
trial and error and that there can be some demonstrations out there and we learn from them and it there's some cool things going on now um we'll see if they're able to learn from them and scale them scale them up or maybe states can pick them up so that that was an interesting addition yeah those, those are all great answers um i'll just add in a couple a couple more that, that i didn't hear come up specifically um i guess they're both on the on the negative side but the there's the community rating is just such a i mean you understand why they did it because that's kind of how you bring in the pre-existing people pre-existing conditions who there's just no way an actuarially fair price that, that they'd be able to afford it but i mean the incentives of community community rating are from the consumer standpoint are kind of crazy as, as far as you, as far as not bearing the downside risk of your own health choices um you know that the, again this idea that uh, premiums are going to depend only on your age but but they're not going to depend on you know if, if we're both 50 and one of us is you know morbidly obese and smokes four packs a day and is an alcoholic all at the same time you know their, their premiums aren't going to change at all to reflect these these choices is is kind of wild um i've looked at you know some of those things empirically and haven't found a lot of evidence yet in the early going that, that there's much happening in terms of you know people gaining weight because they got coverage as a result of the ACA but I mean I think that's something to, to keep an eye on and it could manifest itself in a lot of different ways um, I think also just just really generally as economists uh, we don't like cliffs and uh, it, in policy design we don't like cliffs or you know these perverse discrete incentives like if you are to have social support programs you want people you know, there's this idea of implicit tax of safety net the implicit tax from safety net programs and for every one dollar you earn in additional income you don't want to be giving back more than a dollar in benefits right so the slope at which your benefits phase out as your earned income rises needs to be subtle enough that you don't have a disincentive to work um, that as one of many examples and and so what you really don't want in that case is is a cliff where you know you're phase out phase out and then boom and and where you have these incentives to bunch to like earn exactly this much and not a penny more um and and the aca is really chock full of these sort of cliffs um and not always on the consumer side i mean the exact way the subsidies are done there are, there are definitely cliffs in there that it's not really clear why they need to be um ranges where if you earn another dollar you, you lose more than that um which just sort of makes no sense um and maybe there was some some reason to do it I, I don't know it but other things even like the employer mandate and, and you had a great you know picture of that you uh the cliff at what was it 50 or 100 employees um, it's originally 50, 50 now it's 100. yeah so, so this cliff of have 49 employees and not any more or else you're going to have this but then you can load up on part-time employees they just can't be full-time and you can keep them under 35 hours a week because then they're not technically full-time you have all these wacky you know and that's just one example there's other other things even something didn't come up at all today because there's so many different sort of smaller pieces 
part of Obamacare is this mandate for chain restaurants to post calories on um, on their menus and menu boards, which is why I'm sure you've started to see that more in recent years. Um, and and one of the funny that's even something as minor as that sounds, that's something where there's a cliff, where if you have under 20 locations, you don't have to do this. Uh, and, and it's like this discrete, hard, you know, number, and, and so there's just, there's just lots of those in there. It's don't great for it. research. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate it from that point. Yeah. Great. Actually, in the interest of time, let's uh, cut it off there. Uh, thank you again for all the speakers. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.